Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. I'd like to uh, thank all of you and wish you all the best for 2023. Today, the handover to a new Congress. Hakeem Jeffries, the new leader of the Democrats in the House, gave a fiery speech that some are calling presidential. What's going on? Our guest is Barbara Arnwine and growing concerns about the new government of Israel that is considered the most right wing in Israeli history. Phyllis Bennis fills us in. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. The White House is moving forward with a proposal that would lower student debt payments for millions of Americans now and in the future. It would cap payments for undergraduate loans at 5% of borrowers' pay, cutting their bills in half, and require payment only for those who earn more than $30,000 a year. The proposal would also make it easier to get debt erased after making several years of payments. Existing plans promise to cancel remaining debt after 20 or 25 years. The new plan would erase remaining debt after 10 years for those who took out $12,000 or less in loans. For every 1000 borrowed beyond that, a year would be added. Education Department officials today called the new plan a student loan safety net that'll prevent borrowers from getting overloaded with debt. The president is moving forward with the plan, even as his one-time debt cancellation plan faces an uncertain fate before the Supreme Court. In the House of Representatives, Republicans passed a rules package yesterday along party lines with one Republican opposed. They also passed their first bill, legislation to cut funding that was intended to bolster the IRS. Though the budget office said rather than save money, the move will add $114 billion to the federal deficit. On the House floor Monday, Democrats voiced concern about Republican bills in the works. Alex Gonzalez has more. Democratic Representative Barbara Lee of California were not pleased to see pieces of legislation included in the package that surrounded key issues for Republicans like immigration, taxes, and abortion. This rules package is meant to help this body govern, not restrict the personal autonomy of millions. One of the bills would prohibit taxpayer dollars going towards abortions, despite federally funded abortions already being illegal. I'm Alex Gonzalez for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. The Illinois Senate has approved a ban on semi-automatic weapons. The measure was approved 34 to 20 Monday, just hours after the governor was sworn into his second term, pledging support for the legislation. A group of Chicago doctors and trauma surgeons also spoke in favor of the ban ahead of the vote. At least 2,800 and 32 shootings happened last year in Chicago alone. Add to that number the shootings across the region in the state and the country, and then multiply that number of relatives, neighbors, friends, first responders, and healthcare workers who are traumatized by gun violence every day in this nation. It's a public health crisis. I think we can all say that enough is enough, and that should not be a controversial statement. 
Republicans say the law will be overturned in court as unconstitutional. The Gun Violence Archives reports more than 44,000 gun violence-related deaths last year, including 648 mass shootings. That's nearly two a day in the U.S. Assault weapons have been called the firearm of choice for mass shooters. This year, the archives has documented more than 1,100 gun-related deaths and 21 mass shootings just 10 days into the new year. Thousands of protesters in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo demanded no amnesty following a riot that invaded the heart of Brazil's capital Sunday in an effort to reinstall former right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro with more than 1,500 people arrested. Justice Minister Flavio Dino vowed to prosecute those who helped them and who acted behind the scenes to summon supporters on social media and finance their transport for crimes, including organized crime, staging a coup and violent abolition of the democratic rule of law. We've witnessed a Brazilian version of the U.S. Capitol building attack, but with two differences. First, no one died. And secondly, we have more people under arrest here than in the U.S., and very quickly. He's also said authorities would investigate allegations at local security personnel who allowed the destruction to proceed unabated. Chinese embassies have suspended issuing new visas for South Koreans and Japanese in apparent retaliation for imposing COVID-19 testing requirements from travelers from China. The notice from the Chinese embassy in Seoul said the ban would continue until South Korea lifts its discriminatory entry measures against China. At least 10 countries have done so recently after expressing concern about a lack of information about rapidly spreading COVID-19 outbreaks in China, including the U.S., Italy, Japan, Australia, and South Korea. President Joe Biden is in Mexico City for his first visit to the neighboring country since he was elected president. Christopher Martinez reports about the North American Leader Summit. President Joe Biden and his wife Jill Biden arrived at the National Palace in Mexico City in the president's first visit to Mexico since his election and the first U.S. presidential visit since Barack Obama in 2014. The summit is expected to take up a detailed agenda with items like supply chain issues, the COVID pandemic, and climate change. Migration will be a big issue, as it is domestically for President Biden. And there are trade issues, like Canada's dairy products and Mexico's bans on genetically modified corn and the herbicide glyphosate. The U.S. wants to slash the illegal import of narcotics like fentanyl from Mexico, while Mexico wants fewer U.S. guns. President Biden will meet with Prime Minister Trudeau Tuesday morning, followed by the start of the trilateral summit. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez. The latest in a relentless string of California storms is swamping roads, battering coastlines with high surf and increasing the death toll to at least 14. Another's on the way as a five-year-old boy was swept away in floodwaters out of his mother's truck near Paso Robles in central California. His body has not yet been found. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Benjamin Netanyahu is once again Prime Minister of Israel. This after he was ousted 18 months ago, and he is still facing corruption charges. He has made a deal with some of the most right-wing political parties in Israel, which is causing alarm within Israel and also among Western allies. The Biden administration made a 
relatively mild reprimand for the new Israeli government sanctions against the Palestinian Authority. But on the other hand, the U.S. also blamed the Palestinian Authority uh, for the Israeli-imposed sanctions. They say the sanctions resulted from the Palestinian Authority's request for the U.N. International Court of Justice to issue an advisory opinion of Israeli policies in the Palestinian territories of the West Bank and East Jerusalem. It remains to be seen if the United States will reduce its grants and other funding for the Israeli government. The U.S. on average gives $3.8 billion a year to Israel and foreign assistance. In 2016, a 10-year Memorandum of Understanding was signed, which would provide $38 billion to Israel over a 10-year period. This includes millions for military defense. Among other measures, the Israeli government has now banned display of Palestinian flags in Israel. It is also withholding $40 million in tax revenues from uh, Palestinians and diverting the funds to pay Israeli victims of what is claimed to be violence from Palestinians. Let us go now to a clip from Al Jazeera on the new government, as well as some background on Benjamin Netanyahu. After two months of political wrangling, Israel's most right-wing and religiously conservative government in the country's history has been sworn in. The coalition is being led by Benjamin Netanyahu, who returns as prime minister for a sixth term. His appointment comes 18 months after he was ousted from power and while he's facing corruption charges. Netanyahu says national security will continue to be his top priority. He says he also wants to normalize relations with more Arab countries and expand illegal settlements in the occupied West Bank. Most of the important ministerial posts have been filled by conservative-leaning or ultra-Orthodox politicians. We have four main goals which I defined in my speech. I will repeat them because they are important. First of all, stop Iran. This is an existential question. First of all, we care about existence and security. Second, to restore security and governance within the state of Israel. Third thing, take care of the cost of living and the housing crisis. The fourth thing, and I believe it is also within reach, is to dramatically expand the circle of peace. Last year we, we saw a lot of mistakes from the outgoing government, and today we come back with a lot of energy to change the reality for good in Israel. Let's take a look at Israel's longest-serving Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the ideology of his new government. The 73-year-old leader joined the Likud party in 1988. His first role in government was as Deputy Foreign Minister. In 1993, he was elected party leader. During the 90s, he started Israel on a path towards a free market economy. His government worked with Palestinians on security. He later conditionally agreed to a two-state solution. The new Israeli coalition is deeply conservative, its members come from ultra-nationalist and ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties. All righty. And that was a clip from Al Jazeera. I'd now like to welcome our guest, Phyllis Bennis, directs the new internationalism project at the Institute for Policy Studies, focusing on U.S., Middle East and war policy. She serves on the board of Jewish Voice for Peace. Her most recent books include Understanding the Palestinian 
Israeli conflict. The U.S. warns Israeli sanctions against the Palestinian Authority will exacerbate tensions. This according to the Times of Israel. But as I said in the introduction, it remains to be seen if indeed any of this impacts the huge amount of funding that the United States gives to Israel on a yearly basis. Uh, Israel has consistently been one of the top um, recipients of U.S. foreign aid. The New York Times is also reporting that the ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel are really key to charting the future of Israel. And apparently, Benjamin Netanyahu has promised ultra-Orthodox leaders in Israel a number of concessions that you know, is causing concern among other Israelis who are more secular. He promises things like a separate city for the ultra-Orthodox community where they are known as Haridim. So a separate city for them. And I understand Phyllis Bennis is on the line now. Phyllis, welcome. Good morning. Good to be with you, Margaret. Okay, so I had just, you know, the clip um, we played just to fill you in on what you might have missed was from Al Jazeera, and it gave a breakdown of the political parties that are now part of this ultra right wing government headed by Benjamin Netanyahu. And then it also gave some bio- biographical, um, you know, information on um, Benjamin Netanyahu. But uh, Phyllis, there's a lot of concern now about this new government and the kinds of concessions uh, that were made by Netanyahu um, so that he could be back in power. Tell us about those concessions and what the wider implications are. Well, you know, Margaret, this is less about concession in the sense of how we understand it here, giving away something that you don't want to do in order to get support. In these cases, most of what Netanyahu is giving to the ultra-right parties are things he would have loved to have in his arsenal and to give to other parties in the previous times he served as prime minister, but the coalition governments he led in those periods were not as far right as this current government. This is much further to the right than the earlier right-wing governments. You know, we're not talking about progressive governments or even centrist governments when he was in power as, as uh, prime minister. They were very right-wing governments then. The difference now is there are no centrist parties that are part, that are part of the government, so he doesn't have to even pretend to answer their concerns. And on the right-hand side, you know, Netanyahu at the moment is – probably the furthest left force in that government as oh my goodness. right-wing <laughs> as he is. It's a, it's a horrifying thought, but it is true. On the far right, there are two new parties, one of which is called Jewish Power, had been prohibited until last year uh, from even running candidates for the Knesset because its leader uh, had been arrested and did time in prison for supporting terrorism against Arabs, which if, you know, for people who are familiar with the Israeli uh, judicial system, which traditionally has very powerfully looked the other way when uh, settlers or others 
besides the military, had attacked Palestinian families, destroyed Palestinian homes, killed Palestinian children, any of that, uh, they were very rarely held accountable. This guy was so extreme that he was held accountable briefly, and he now is a major figure in this government taking on the uh, a new security-based ministry. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that Netanyahu would have loved to do in the past, but because there's no challenge to his leadership now in the, uh, in the coalition, uh, he can get away with it. In return, and part of the reason for him moving so quickly to, to not only satisfy but really um, embolden the far right is that he's looking for them to pass a number of laws that are less relevant to Palestinians and more relevant to Benjamin Netanyahu himself, specifically taking away the independence of the judiciary and making it possible for the Knesset, the parliament, to pass laws that would overturn any decision made by the Israeli courts, including the high court. That is what he's looking to, to protect him from ever serving time in jail for the whole host of charges which have to do with financial mismanagement and theft and that sort of thing, uh, corruption charges of a variety of sorts, that he's facing. The trial there has been going on for two years already. It's going to go on for much longer. But what he is looking towards is a way of ensuring that he never goes to prison. So some of this is even beyond the ideological commitments that Netanyahu and his right-wing allies bring to this. It goes beyond the absolute support for apartheid and the racism towards Palestinians. It goes beyond the, the eagerness to seize more land and expel more Palestinians from that land. And it goes directly to his self-interest to stay out of jail. It gives him a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, I mean, this is scary stuff. And Phyllis Venice, if you look at what is happening uh, right now in uh, the United States, I mean, one could imagine if the ultra-right, like the, those 20 or so who, uh, who thought that uh, Kevin McCarthy was too left, right, or too moderate, you know, to be a uh, speaker of the House and, you know, blocked. We'll be talking about that um, in our second segment uh, with another guest. But if you could look at uh, those people, Matt Gates and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, et cetera, being the ones entirely in charge of the nation and being actual cabinet ministers, you know, that gives a sense then of why the alarm uh, within Israel itself, but also of the United States. But um, I, from what I gather, uh, Jake uh, Sullivan and Anthony Blinken, um, they're supposed from the Biden administration, are going to be visiting uh, Israel very soon. And the administration made a, a kind of a, a mild reproach of Israel for the sanctions they've imposed, including Margaret, this $40 million. Part of what I was getting to is to find out from Phyllis, and hopefully we will be able to get her back on the line. Phyllis, you're back now? I'm back. This seems okay. 
Okay, you're, you're hearing me okay. Uh, I Phyllis, am. I was just making a contrast with what's going on in Israel and looking at the politics now in the United States and those 20 people that thought Kevin McCarthy was too moderate uh, to be, you know, uh, the lead speaker of the House. Um, and imagine that crew uh, being in cabinet positions in the United States and entirely um, running the government. And so a similar crew from what you're saying are now in charge in, in Israel. But I also was saying that Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken are going to be visiting uh, Israel very soon. And the Biden administration, they made a, a relatively, well, to me anyway, a mild uh, protest about the sanctions that the government is now imposing. Uh, put in place against the Palestinian Authority. But what does that really mean in terms of U.S. Uh, support? Do you, do you think that there will be any meaningful change in terms of uh, U.S. support for this ultra uh, right-wing government in Israel? Phyllis Benes. I think that it really is going to be much more a function of us and the movement for Palestinian rights, the movement for equality, uh, and the movement for, shall we say, normalizing the U.S. relationship with Israel rather than having this special relationship uh, to treat Israel the way it treats every other country. Uh, if our movement is stronger, they will be forced to uh, make at least some cosmetic changes, which may set the stage for some more serious changes in Congress. We have seen some real changes in the composition of the Congress. Uh, that's not to say that Congress as a whole, or even significant numbers of, of members of Congress, are necessarily prepared at this time to reduce, let alone end, U.S. military support for Israel, the $3.8 billion a year starting point for U.S. military aid, which is generally raised by about $100 billion more each, uh, each year. Uh, sorry, by, by a billion more each year, not 100 by a billion more each year. Uh, but at the same time, I think that the administration, including Sullivan and, and Blinken, are very concerned about the shifts in public discourse and public opinion which are underway. That's where we're seeing real success uh, of our movement in changing public opinion by providing information and an understanding of what the Israeli state is doing, the significance of the major human rights organizations all issuing re reports in this last year uh, documenting Israeli apartheid and making clear that the Israeli state is uh, carrying out actions which are in violation of the international covenant against the crime of apartheid. So in that context, I think they're very concerned that having this extremist government that has no interest, at least that we've seen any evidence of so far, in even appearing to take into account international public opinion or international government's opinions uh, about their violations of international law, just the, the daily litany of things that the, uh, the parliament is, is looking at, they're, uh, they're taking money that is owed to the Palestinian Authority, that is collected by Israel, but is supposed to be transferred directly to the Palestinian Authority. They're now refusing to do that. Uh, giving that money 138 million shekels, which amounts to almost $40 million uh, just yesterday, that they're giving to families of uh, victims of what they call Palestinian terrorism and their families. 
uh, taking that money away, the money that belongs to the Palestinian Authority. They've just prohibited the flying of the Palestinian flag. They've prohibited the unlimited visits by members of the parliament to Palestinian prisoners. Uh, so these kinds of actions are going on on a daily basis. This is just the report from yesterday. This is all just one day's worth of new laws that are being put forward with virtually no significant opposition within the, uh, within the Knesset. So I think that it's going to be a very difficult trip for Sullivan and, and Blinken. I don't think that they will be in, in a position to make any indications to the Israeli government that they have any intention of actually changing the level of U.S. support. There will be no reduction in the $3.8 billion a year. There will be no reduction in the level of U.S. protection of Israel at the United Nations. There will probably be no reference to the continuing U.S. pressure on the International Criminal Court to prevent them from moving forward on the investigation that's been underway in the court uh, of Israeli war crimes and crimes against humanity. Uh, so I don't anticipate any actual shifts. But I do think there will probably be an explanation to the Israeli government uh, about the greater difficulty that the Biden administration is now faced with at maintaining this level of support, given the recklessness of both the language and the actions of this new government. Now, whether the new government uh, takes that seriously, I think, is a big question, because in the past, the tradition has been throughout virtually every administration in this country, Republican and Democratic, the tradition has been to, when, when pushed, to make a gentle criticism, we're concerned about X, we're concerned about this particular settler, settlement expansion, uh, but with no follow-up, no consequence, and the Israelis have come to rely on that. So I can see the meeting with Netanyahu with him rolling his eyes and saying, thank you very much, uh, and we'll see you next time, without any real concern that there is a threat to the, not just relationship, but the privileging of Israeli interests that have for so long characterized U.S. policy towards Israel. Yeah, and, and also, um, Phyllis Bennis, what about within Israel itself? I mean, the New York Times has a, a rather uh, lengthy article about the increased power of ultra-Orthodox uh, parties uh, right. in Israel. And, well, as you say, not really concessions, but things that um, Netanyahu uh, likely wanted, uh, wanted to do. But, you know, there are some concerns, it seems, of uh, Israel becoming even more of a theocracy. What are you right. hearing in terms of objections within Israel itself? And is there a, a kind of a growing movement against uh, this thrust, this ultra-right-wing thrust in Israel? Yeah, I think that we are seeing an increased level of concern among Israelis. The majority uh, of... Phyllis, are you, are you still there? Were you dropped again? No, okay. I'm still here. Yeah. I can still hear you. It's not okay. a good line that I can hear you. What we're, what we're hearing is that there is a great deal of concern about the homophobia of this government. One of the new ministers is known for harsh homophobic uh, positions that he's taken, uh, and that, they, that there's a very good chance that some of the, the much-vaunted uh, 
uh, LGBT rights that Israel brags about, you know, in what's known as pinkwashing. Keep the focus on how liberal Israel is and how we're so, our pride, uh, our pride parade every year is the biggest in the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera, that that is all at risk. That marriage issues, which already discriminate against Jews who are not orthodox, uh, those who are secular or those who are reform or conservative Jews rather than orthodox, who face all kinds of religious uh, discrimination, uh, things like the pressure that periodically comes up in the Knesset but has never uh, been imposed as a law, things like shutting down the bus services across the country during the Jewish Sabbath, uh, those kinds of uh, laws that are designed to privilege the ultra-Orthodox, as well as specific privileges like expanding the percentage of ultra-Orthodox men, already a very high percentage, who are given government stipends so they don't have to work and can spend all their time studying the, the Torah. Uh, there are new stipends for ultra-Orthodox schools, where just like in some of the ultra-Orthodox yeshivas here in the United States, there are accusations that the children are being taught basically just religious, uh, religious tenets uh, taught in Hebrew and sometimes Yiddish and not taught basic uh, uh, math and science and history and all the basic subjects that are required by the government. They're excluded from those uh, uh, obligations. So those kinds of privileges to the ultra-Orthodox community are almost certainly going to grow. And this is in a period when the ultra-Orthodox represent a growing percentage of the Israeli Jewish population. So it becomes an increasing challenge for those who, among Israeli Jews who want to challenge uh, those, those, new, uh, those new laws and this new shift away from whatever level of secularism still existed within Israel. Well, on that note, I'm afraid we are out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there, Phyllis Bennis. But, you know, we'll be keeping our eye on this, and we hope that you will be able to join us again. Thank you so much, Phyllis Bennis. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a short station break. And coming up, uh, changes happening in Washington, D.C., wider implications, including for voting rights and race relations and much more. So uh, stay with us. We'll be right back. And that is uh, one of my favorites, Bob Marley, coming in from the cold. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter 
at So True Radio. And we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Southern Illinois. And uh, internationally, I would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the Palestinian territories. Okay, so we are now going to turn our attention to this uh, turn over the 118th uh, Congress now in place. This after a bruising midterm election that gave the Republican Party a smaller than predicted majority in the House of Representatives and uh, Democrats the majority in the Senate. Now, Representative Hakeem Jeffries was elected to succeed longtime Democratic leader and the first woman Speaker of the House in U.S. history, Nancy Pelosi, as the House Minority Leader, a position that Pelosi held for over 20 years. Now, let us go to a clip actually right now um, to hear some words from Hakeem Jeffries, who gave a pretty fiery uh, speech, especially the ending of his speech. Uh, We'll go to that clip right now. And some people are calling it uh, presidential. (laughs) Well, we'll see what you think. Let us go to that clip right now. But I also want to make clear that we will never compromise our principles. House Democrats will always put American values over autocracy, benevolence over bigotry, the Constitution over the cult, democracy over demagogues, economic opportunity over extremism, freedom over fascism, governing over gaslighting, hopefulness over hatred, inclusion over isolation, justice over judicial overreach, knowledge over kangaroo courts, liberty over limitation, maturity over Mar-a-Lago, normalcy over negativity, opportunity over obstruction, people over politics, quality of life issues over QAnon, reason over racism, substance over slander, triumph over tyranny, understanding over ugliness, voting rights over voter suppression, working families over the well-connected, xenial over xenophobia. Yes, we can over you can do it. For the American people will reap the benefit of the harvest if we do not give up. Okay, Hakeem Jeffries, um, originally a representative in New York State out of uh, Crown Heights, uh, Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And those are are his words. We'll be keeping an eye on, on what he's doing about that list. Uh, that he gave. But on the GOP side, it took a week-long bruising battle among Republicans, (laughs) including over 15 rounds of voting for Kevin McCarthy to be finally named Speaker of the House. In his bout to become Speaker, he made critical concessions to the ultra-right in his party. It was the first time an election for Speaker went to multiple ballots since 1923. 
of those who tried to block McCarthy were a dozen um, representatives who denied the 2016 election results. And several of them are believers in the racist great replacement theory. Already, Kevin McCarthy has announced huge cuts to the IRS. He set up a committee to investigate the origins of COVID-19 as well as U.S. response uh, to the virus. They also intend to investigate President Biden. I imagine that that's just the beginning salvo. Well, let us welcome uh, Barbara Arnwine, who is a veteran civil rights and human rights leader and advocate. She is currently the president and founder of the Transformative Justice Coalition. For more than two decades, she was the executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. She's known nationally and internationally for her work on the 1991 Civil Rights Act, the creation of the 2011 voter suppression map of shame. She continues on a daily basis to champion civil rights issues in the areas of housing, fair lending, community involvement, employment, voter justice, educational, environmental justice, and much more. She's an award-winning uh, campaigner. Barbara Arnwine, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much for having me today. Right, and, and wish you all good things as possible uh, for the coming year in 2023. Uh, yes, 23. happy new year. Yes. Uh, Barbara, um, before we talk about anything else, let's, I played that clip of the now minority leader of the House, Hakeem uh, Jeffries. Um, your thoughts or comments on, uh, on that speech, and uh, you know, do you think that it's, it's having any impact? Well, you know, I thought the entire, during the entire fight uh, over who was going to be speaker, which really was a fight between the two extremes of the uh, party, uh, you know, the hard right and the far right. I mean, it was just crazy uh, to watch, you know, what was going on with the GOP. But that whole time, I thought the Democrats were on a mission to define themselves. And I thought they did the best job they've ever done in the last, uh, I would say at least the last decade of being clear about who Democrats are. And I thought they, the uh, Republicans made a huge mistake of giving them all that opportunity, all that platform time to just speak over and over and over and over again about who the Democrats were, what policies they favored, what they stood for, how they differed from the GOP. That was a huge mistake. And Hakeem's speech was the apple. It was the cherry on the top of the entire uh, Democratic, uh, I thought, you know, onslaught uh, that we saw during that entire time where he spoke with, uh, you know, people are calling it now, what, the alphabet speech? They're calling yep. it the A to Z speech. Uh, and people loved it. I mean, I have never seen a speech go so viral on social media. And, you know, people are playing it in so many ways. But I, when I was, uh, I was one of those people who was up on the East Coast time at two o'clock a.m., uh, you know, watching all the proceedings. And I, when I heard the speech, I howled, especially when he said maturity over Mar-a-Lago. I said, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, 
he was excellent and he was defiant. He was respectful, but he was defiant. He stood on principle. He really, I thought, gave as, as the minority leader, he gave a definition to his party. And that's what's been missing. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have said, you know, Dems are just all over the place. Who in the world are they? You know, they got all of these, you know, different you know factions and segmentation. But what you saw during that time was the last thing the GOP should have let the public see, which was a united uh, Democratic Party that really spoke of its values. And I was shocked because, you know, I'm, I, you know, as you know, I'm not a uh, political party person. And, uh, you know, so I don't, you know, just live for political parties. I live for, you know, uh, voting rights justice. I live for democracy, for voter justice. Uh, so it's, you know, those are my motivations, but to watch them and to understand, you know, politics, I said, Ooh, that was a mistake. They made a big, big mistake to allow the Dems to uh, prevail so strongly during that period. Yeah, and Barbara, I'm, I'm really with you because a lot of people kind of confuse uh, the political class or elected officials with a movement, right? A right, movement exactly. from the base, and we know that we need that movement. Um, but, you know, just to say, I mean, in terms of, of Hakeem uh, Jeffries, you know, some people with this talk about, oh, it sounded presidential. In fact, one of my neighbors immediately um, contacted me and said, wow, he sounded presidential. This is a black woman, right? And, uh, you know, I suppose people are contrasting that. Remember the speech from Obama about red states and blue states? Yeah. You know, when he was a senator and people said, you know, watch, watch that guy. And with all of the angst um, that the party is going through with, will Biden run again? What's going to happen with Kamala Harris? Can she really, you know, hold it, et cetera? I imagine that some people are now keeping their eye on, on, on Hakeem. Um, your thoughts? Are you hearing anything? Any thoughts uh, along those lines? No doubt about it. I mean, he um, he had a moment to uh, to address uh, the nation, to define himself. And even though, you know, Aguilar and others had, you know, spoken of him, given him so many accolades, so many, you know, uh, you know, great, uh, you know, uh, comments, uh, compliments, I thought he rose to the moment in a way that no one, I mean, who, who can do that at 1.30, you know, two o'clock in the morning, East Coast time, I mean, who can do that? But he just rose to the moment. He seized it. He really was compelling in the moment. And that is how careers, political careers are made. That's how uh, political careers are defined. I thought he was uh, absolutely superb. And let me tell you, he's a person I've never really paid a lot of attention to. Uh, even though I know he was in the Democratic leadership, even though you know I've seen him on several occasions, this was the first time he really made my eyes get wide open and look at him and say, hmm, listen to that. Because leadership is all about being able to seize the moment. It's all about being able to uh, you know, come prepared because that was, you know, that, those weren't you know, extemporaneous com, uh, remarks. He had prepared that speech and to come prepared, come you know, ready uh, and come with an agenda. And I thought he did all of those things and, and powerfully so. And it was great 
uh, you know, to see him, uh, you know, so strongly. And and I just love the fact that uh, there was such unity behind him. And that unity, by the way, was not a joke. Uh, the, that, you know, from, uh, you know, I'm here in D.C. and I know what people say about each other and I hear it all across the board. But that but there was a lot of serious uh, unity within the Democratic Party behind him. And it started that morning. You know, I was there for the Congressional Black Caucus uh, swearing in ceremony that was at 9 a.m. in the morning. And everybody it was all about Hakeem. It was all about him in that morning. And I think, you know, um, that was, you know, that the swearing in ceremony was on the third. And, uh, you know, and people just, you know, continued that theme all the way through until, you know, uh, all the way through until today. Right. And uh, to remind our listeners, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Our guest is uh, Barbara Arnwai, known for her humanitarian work, known for her work, especially in the areas of uh, voting rights. And um, we are discussing, you know, the the changeover that's happening in in Washington, D.C. But uh, Barbara, um, looking then on the GOP side, you mentioned that that Mm. bruising battle. Some scary stuff going on there. I mean, you have the, uh, according to reports, the 20 Republicans um, of who tried to block McCarthy, like he's too much to the left. (laughs) Give me a break. And um, they're deniers of the the election results, the, the 2020 election. And almost most of the incumbents voted against certifying the the results. Right. And, you know, and who knows how involved they were in, in, in January uh, six. And they, they are, they, they now have, uh, I don't know if they believe it, but at least they uh, expose that they have embraced uh, the theories of this great replacement uh, theory about immigration and there's this whole white nationalist you know thing uh, underpinning all of this so your thoughts on this in terms of what it means uh for the movement for racial justice the movement for uh voting rights and and what can actually happen given that these people are now basically in charge of the house well well first of all don't anyone get it confused uh, this is not a fight between moderates and extremists. Uh, these are t- all extremists. Uh, they, you know, they are believers in the big lie, the stolen election. Uh, they hate government. Uh, they do not believe in the social uh, safety net. Uh, they're going to do everything they can to destroy it. You saw Ron Johnson, you know, talking about, uh, you know, seniors abusing uh, Social Security and why it should go. Uh, you've been listening to all of these, uh, you know, really very, very un-American, uh, you know, uh, positions they've been taking. And like you said, I mean, these are people who everybody remember that on the, the uh, that on the 6th, uh, the president uh, Biden went up to the Capitol Hill and was there, and they had a major uh, ceremony, giving away gold medals. They had, uh, you know, speeches on the steps. One, one, everybody, one Republican showed. One of those elected House 
member Republicans showed. So it shows you that uh, that they do not, uh, you know, want to uh, deal with the realities of uh, of uh, you know the people's uh, vote in this country. That they will do everything they can to step to just push and impose and force upon us their agenda. And we got to fight back. You know, we cannot sit back and say, you know, that we are just going to wait until 2024. I keep telling people that this is not an off year. This, in fact, is the most on year 2023 that we've ever had for making sure that our values, that our democracy is protected because they're going to attack the January 6th report. They're going to attack the January 6th committee. They're going to, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, pretend uh, that there were problems with the election. They're going to try to get rid of, uh, you know, what we call uh, vote by mail. They're going to, you know, do everything they can uh, to make our democracy more restricted. And we, and I'm not just saying that because, you know, to me, there's really no difference between Gats and McCarthy. They're just, you know, they were just feuding. Uh, these are like, you know, these are just feuds among the same, you know, uh, you know, uh, the same people. In fact, like I told somebody, it's, it's like watching two warring games uh, where, you know, neither one has your best interest and neither one is going to make you safe. And that's who, what we watched is just two rival games. And they're all, all, you know, uh, based on, you know, really very undemocratic and when I say I'm living, I'm using little d, they don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in the people's vote. They don't believe in, uh, you know, in uh, looking after the general wear, welfare. They're, you know, they're against those elements of the Constitution. We got to understand that we have to, as a people, uh, you know, unite now and be determined in this year and in the years coming to keep people like that. Uh, you know, at bay uh, and to make sure that they never rule again. And, uh, you know, and I think people did a great job on the midterm elections, but, uh, you know, but there were leadership failures, as you can see across the board in New York and in California that led to the result that we're looking at. And so those are things that people have to, you know, address. Hakeem has some, uh, you know, serious, uh, you know, uh, challenges ahead of him. And but but more importantly, those of us who just are out there in the democracy field, we have challenges because when I watched, uh, I don't know how you felt, Margaret, but when I watched the Bolsonaro, uh, you know, supporters storm the capital of Brazil, uh, you know, I said, here we go again. And it turns out that, yes, Roger Stone and yes, you know, some of these, uh, you know, players who were players in our uh, January 6th were players in what we saw happening with um, the the Bolsonaro uh, in, uh, attempted coup insurrection. We got to understand, folks, and I've been saying this forever, is that this is not just a U.S. fight. It's a global fight of authoritarianism. Authoritarianism, white supremacy, uh, you know, against, you know, the rest of us. And if we don't unite and fight and educate our people and, you know, really, you know, make sure that we use the tools at our, at our disposal, then we will keep being overrun. But, uh, but 
uh, the good news is that I see a generation of folks who aren't for that. I love what the uh, what the young generation is saying. I love what the Gen Zs are saying. They're going to be the dominant uh, voters, you know, Gen Zs and millennials in 2024. And they are already exercising their chops. And they are really, as you saw in the polling data, exit polling data, 30% of them are obsessed with democracy and concerned about it. So I think, you know, we got to, all the the uh, resources we need, but we just got to really unite and ex- leverage them. Yeah. And Barbara, I'm so glad uh, you mentioned uh, Brazil. That was going to be my next question, actually, oh, okay. was the, the international uh, implications of all of this. I mean, this is no yes. joke what is going on here, because this uh, what happened on January 6th, what is going on even now with that, you know, with the with the Republican Party, you know, wide implications internationally. Earlier in the show, we did a segment about this new ultra right wing government in Israel and, yes. and and the fact that they have drawn so much uh, from the ultra right um, here in the United States. And you've got people now in the cabinet in Israel who had been to prison. OK, for killing people, for terrorist attacks. Right now, coordinating uh, the police uh, forces uh, there. I mean, this is this is the, the level of things uh, going on there. So you're right about the, you know, just the, the global implications of all of this. And just as you have this great replacement theory here in the United States, it's you have everywhere. people now in the government there who, who hate Palestinians, who will openly say they hate Palestinians and they all need to be thrown out of Israel, never mind that whose land it was in the first darn place. Um, so, but Barbara, you're, you're absolutely right in underscoring that. Just in the, the minute and a half or so we have left, though, about um, the impact of voter suppression in the uh, the midterm elections. Yes. Do you think that it had a, a dampening re- um, oh, impact on the result? Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's uh, you know, there's no doubt in my mind. Uh, and all the research tends to indicate uh, that uh, the voter suppression laws that were enacted across the state, or uh, you know, close to you know, uh, you know, four hundred that were introduced, and uh, close to one hundred and forty that were passed. Uh, you know, people need to understand that they had an impact on the uh, midterm election, especially on African American voters who were really harmed. Uh, including Native American voters who were really harmed by these uh, new policies that were designed in Georgia alone. We know we saw a million less voters, period, across the yeah. board because of the loss of you know the uh, vote by mail uh, that was part of the voter suppression. The, you, you know the killing of drop boxes. Uh, you know the whole uh, new bill that was just passed in Ohio. You know making uh, saying you could only have one drop box per county per county. Uh, yeah. You know, these are the things that we know hurt and it's going to be imperative, imperative. This is what I'm going to do all this year is to work on educating voters, building new programs to help voters to overcome these obstacles. We cannot sit back and allow them to steal our government. Right. And I encourage our our listeners to go to the website for the Transformative Justice Coalition. Barbara, we're out of time, but you know, we'll have you back. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for all of your work. Thank Thank you, you Barbara. Thank you very much.
Thank All righty. Uh, we are out of time. Uh, today's show produced by me, Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank all of today's guests. I'd like to thank Alicia Vargas, our assistant, our producer, Gary Baca, our engineer. Uh, Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. But if you would like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Stay tuned for more special programming on your station. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and you all please remember to stay well and safe. Your